Well, good morning, church. I am glad to be here uh, teaching and, and getting to open the word together on this Sunday. Uh, it is November 8th, 2020, and the election was five days ago. We think we know a, win, a winner pending you know, litigation and recounts and all of that kind of stuff. How are you doing? Did you survive the last several months of this? How are you holding up? You know, the good and the bad news is it's only 208 weeks till our next election, so you've got plenty of time uh, to get ready and prepare for the next one. It's November 8th, 2020, and coronavirus has been with us now for about eight months as we eagerly or maybe impatiently await a vaccine or herd immunity or whatever it may be. How are you doing? It's November 8th, 2020, and we are meeting, well now, online. We were supposed to be outside, but the wind. Uh, and we're unsure what the future holds for our corporate worship together. It's November 8th, 2020, seven weeks until Christmas. Have you started shopping yet? You know, you better get to Costco before they take down Christmas and put up all of their 4th of July merchandising. Go now. It's okay. You can pause the live stream. Uh, it's November 8th, 2020. And you and I are called to live faithfully to Jesus here and now. To, to live out our identity in Christ, in this world, in this time, in this place. How do we do that? Well, Peter has written a letter to a group of people not all that different from us. They were a people who increasingly found themselves uh, as cultural outsiders. They were a people who were trying to live faithfully to Jesus they were people wondering how they should relate to the state and government authorities. They were people in need of encouragement. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to, to go listen to Kevin's sermon online from last week. It was an, uh, just a wonderful teaching. But our passage was the climax of the first half, the first part of, of Peter's letter. And it was a great reminder of who we are in Christ. Do you remember? Peter says, that if you are in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These are amazing truths on which we can soar up into the heights. But as Peter turns this week to this now second part of the letter, he takes these huge theological truths and he plants them down into the earth. He takes us from, from soaring up in these amazing realities about us to putting our feet back on the ground and sending us out to live. Having established all that is true about us through the gospel, he says, okay, now this is how you go live this out. And what we're going to find is that in this world, we are called to live as two things. And this is our outline for this morning. We are called to live first as aliens and strangers, and secondly, as servants and subjects. We're called to live as aliens and strangers first, and then as servants and, and subjects. So let's read our passage. Uh, I am going to include last week's verses because I want you to hear the, the turn that Peter makes. So we're going to read together 1 Peter chapter 2, I hope you're there, verses 9 to 17. Let's read this together. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here's our week's passage. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And church, this is God's word for us. All right. Let's dive in to uh, our outline. Peter begins by telling us we are aliens and strangers, verses 11 and 12. Peter begins uh, by urging us, calling us beloved. Now, that's kind of an old-timey word. It might be unfamiliar uh, to you, but Peter is communicating endearment, love for these people, and he's urging them, not commanding them, but urging them. He lovingly says, live as sojourners and exiles. Now, some of your translations may say aliens and strangers. That's the, the words that I'm going to repeat over and over again, mainly because I have the hardest time pronouncing the word sojourners. Often I put uh, the wrong emphasis, excuse me, the emphasis on the wrong syllable, and I say uh, sojourners over and over again. My wife mocks me, so to spare myself from that uh, humiliation, I'm going to say aliens and strangers. Uh, maybe your translation says that too. But the idea is this. That if we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, if we have been made kings and queens as heirs of the king, if we've been made priests, well then when we get our feet back on the ground, we will necessarily be estranged from the world that used to be home. Do you see that? Now this is so fascinating. He says, as foreigners live good lives among the Gentiles. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, this is, let me just tell you, it's a strange and maybe confusing thing that Peter is doing because he's most likely writing to an audience that were largely non-Jewish. They were ethnically Gentiles, but they have been called out of their former life, made kings and priests, given this new identity. So now he says, those people around you who may be ethnically the same as you, they are the Gentiles. What does that make Peter's audience? What makes them Jews? Israel. Kevin touched on this last week, but, but Peter's doing something astounding. He piles up descriptions that were originally used for the Jewish people, for Israel. And he says that you, church, you are now Israel. Now, this makes some people very uncomfortable because it sounds as if the church is somehow replacing Israel. It's not. Okay, Paul makes this clear in Romans 9 to 11. There is one people of God, one people of God through history. And the Jewish remnant that God preserved through exile, he then takes them up and through Christ, he grafts in all these other folks, all the Gentiles who place their faith in Christ. The church does not replace Israel. No, the church is Israel. 
its fulfillment and continuation through history. Such that Peter can write to this predominantly Gentile church and say, live as foreigners among those Gentiles, those non-Jewish people. See, once we were not a people, but now we are God's people, which makes us then strangers and exiles in what used to be our homeland. Peter goes on. To be aliens and strangers means that we need to abstain from evil living on the one hand and then maintain good living on the other hand. Now, in community group this week, maybe you talked about the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is spiritual. Peter says the passions of the flesh, our our sinful desires, are waging war against our souls. So if we're going to live in this marvelous light, we need to fight. Maybe you know the name John Owen. He famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's true. But our battle is not against our host country. We aren't fighting our neighbors, as some cultural warriors may think, but rather we are among them and in front of them where we can be seen by them, or at least we're supposed to be. Think about aliens, strangers, foreigners, exiles. How are they known to be that? Well, often there are distinguishing characteristics, distinguishing marks. You know, if you go to a, a refugee community, often there are cultural things that, that mark them off as different. Sometimes it's language, sometimes it's the way they're dressed, sometimes it's their cuisine, you know, the food that they eat. When I graduated from, from college, I moved uh, to a town just outside of Cape Town in South Africa, and I lived there for about 16 months, a little over a year. And when I went to work in the townships, which were these poor black communities, um, it was obvious that I was a foreigner. You know, the communities, like I said, they they were primarily black. And and here I was, this big, blonde, white American guy walking down the street. And often I got to work, you know, with with kids. And and they would see me from down the street a couple blocks away. And they would yell for me. They'd be like, Mlungu, Mlungu, which roughly translates to whitey. And they'd be screaming at me and and waving. And I'd wave back. And it was great. but, But I was... It stuck, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I also had this American accent when I spoke English, and I didn't speak Afrikaans, one of the you know, primary languages of the 12 official languages they have in that country. So it was clear that I was a foreigner. I was a stranger. But do you want to know something interesting? In my first few months there, it was also quite obvious that I was a foreigner when I went into the white communities as well. Because I didn't know the customs at the grocery store. I didn't know what a queue was. I didn't know that where you line up or what you're supposed to do. I didn't know what to do at restaurants, how much you tip. I didn't know what things were. I didn't know how to you know, interact with the attendants at the gas station. I didn't know that there was, such, there was no such thing as a public bathroom there. I stuck out. I was a stranger and an alien. So what is it about the Christian community, or what should it be, that marks us off as different. You know, we may immediately jump to thinking some of the more eccentric examples in our country. Uh, We might think of maybe the Amish or some strict Mennonite sects that dress very differently. They have a very different relationship with technology than the rest of the culture. You know, that's their conviction as to how, you know, the best way they think they're supposed to live as aliens and strangers. But what about us? Well, what does Peter say? In our passage, Peter says that we are to live such good lives to keep our conduct so honorable among the Gentiles so that they can see our good deeds and glorify God. The point 
is that there's supposed to be something about us, a goodness, that marks us off as different. Peter said this earlier in his letter. He said, we are to be holy, to be set apart, to be aliens and strangers. Well, it echoes Jesus' words to his disciples. Peter was there. He heard it the night before Jesus went to the cross, where Jesus told his disciples, he said, we are not of the world, but you are sent into the world. And so in Christian subculture, you know, we have the, the phrase, maybe you've heard it, we're in the world, but not of the world. Now, this is a point at which I think we need to maybe stop and consider our own lives. Because I think a lot of Christians, at least in California, somehow have flipped those prepositions, and we're actually living of the world, but not in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, I think many of us have been so shaped by the world around us, such that there are no distinguishing marks about us that say we belong to Jesus. Whether it be the effects of social media or cable news or pop culture or high culture or horticulture, we can be conformed to the world. That was a joke for all of you out there. I couldn't hear you laugh, but whatever. Uh, See, we take on the world's habits, its rhythms, its buying guides, its political methods, its posture towards neighbors, its inflammatory rhetoric, its posture towards money, its gossip, its devaluing of human life, its gluttony, its drunkenness, its sexual ethics, its views about gender and human biology, its infatuation with celebrity and enslavement to technology. We take all of that into ourselves. We're shaped by it, transformed by it. And at the same time, Because we're Christians, we slowly back ourselves out of meaningful relationships with anyone who isn't a believer. And the result is that we are of the world, but not in it. How is it with you? Maybe we need to pause and take stock this morning and hear Peter encourage us to live as aliens and strangers whose strangeness, well, it's it's this mark of, of good deeds that caused the world to take notice. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book called The Four Loves. Uh, And in it, he's talking about the fact that we need to imitate God. Uh, We're called to, to be holy as God is holy, to imitate him. But he says, when we're doing this, when we're imitating God, we shouldn't think or we shouldn't look to God in the heavens, you know, in his transcendent qualities, his power and sovereignty. That's not the God that we're to imitate. No, but rather the God, well, who came to earth, He says this, there's a a quote, hopefully it'll come up for you. It says, our model is Jesus, not just of Calvary, but also of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions. This is the divine life operating under human conditions. That's the model that we imitate. Now, there's one more aspect of this before we move to our second point. Peter says, act honorably so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Peter says when, not if. Part of being a stranger and an alien is to expect opposition for our strangeness. What makes our good deeds so important is that it will be contrasted with the accusations and slander that we can expect from the watching world. So many Christians think that if they can just show the world that they're different from those, you know, those other Christians that are so embarrassing, so hypocritical, well then, the world will love them. 
If only we can remove all barriers to the gospel, if we can create this kind of neutral ground for people to evaluate our truth claims, then people will give us a fair, fair hearing and they'll just flock to Jesus. Peter says, well, not likely. There will be many who still hate you because you follow Jesus. And the Bible teaches there's no such neutral ground in this world. Apart from Christ, we all are bent in on ourselves. We all were walking in darkness. And though many crave the light, there are parts of us that hate the light when it shines because it exposes our wickedness. If you follow Christ, the world might approve of your new compassion for the, for, for the poor and disenfranchised. But they'll probably hate you for the sexual ethics that are also included in Jesus' way. They might like you for, you know, the fact that the Bible teaches that there's such a thing as private property and stealing is wrong, but they'll also call you a communist because of how radically generous we're called to be. See, when we put this all together, our, our calling to be distinctly good and the expectation of opposition, I think, well, what it does, I think there's two ways we may need to be generally, or excuse me, gently corrected by Peter. So, on the one hand, I think there are those among us, those Christians, who view the world as their enemy and therefore think that they're, they're fighting unbelievers. Okay, it's not true. See, they know they'll face opposition, so in their hearts and maybe in their lives, they've set themselves as adversaries to the watching world and let themselves off the hook from doing good. Peter says, no, you're not of the world, but you have been sent into it to proclaim God's excellencies and to live such good lives that God gets the glory. On the other hand, there are those Christians who maybe need a gentle nudge in the other way. See, they, they get the idea that we need to live well, but they haven't grasped yet that we will be hated. And they find themselves surprised or disheartened by the accusations of the world. And maybe when, it, when an unbeliever calls another Christian judgmental or harsh or a bigot, well, maybe they assume, yeah, it's kind of warranted. When sometimes it's just darkness hating the light and it's foolish slander that will be silenced in the end. Peter says, we are kings and queens and priests of God sent into the world as aliens and strangers. Expect to be different. Expect to stand out. Make it your purpose to, to let your good deeds and your honorable lives be the difference. Okay, we're aliens and strangers. Second, we are servants and subjects. This is verses 13 to 17. Peter goes on in his letter to tease out more of what this honorable living looks like. Now, if you have a paper Bible, you can see this easily. If you're on your phone or tablet, I'm sorry, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. But, but look at your Bible if you have it. Peter is going to tell us in a variety of spheres what this looks like. And he's going to use the same word, the same phrase, in a couple different places. And you can just kind of see it on the page. It becomes obvious. So if, for instance, you have an ESV, it's going to say, be subject. Okay, look at your Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 13, paragraph begins, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Jump down a paragraph, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Okay, we'll get into that bag of worms next week. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject. Whoa, another landmine. Kevin gets that one too. Um, then down in chapter 5, it, he'll tell the church to be subject to the elders. Now, if you have an NIV or a CSB, it will say in all three places, submit. It uses that word. But chapter 2, verse 13, it functions as a bit of an introductory comment 
where he says, be subject to every human institution. And then he goes on to talk about government, business, family, and the church. Living honorably includes submitting ourselves, being subject to the various earthly authorities under which we find ourselves. Now, it's important at this point to qualify and frame this correctly. Specifically, Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. When we submit ourselves, when we respectfully subject ourselves to human authorities, we do it not for their sake, but for God's. So in verse 16, we find out that because we are servants of God, we are free people, meaning that we are not slaves of the government. We are not bound to obey the government in the same way we are bound to obey God. No, we are free from that. But in our freedom, God calls us to subject ourselves to these human authorities. Verse 13 is actually quite subversive and revolutionary. Okay, in, in the Roman Empire in the first century, everyone knew that Caesar was Lord. The emperor was, was thought to be divine. And to claim that anyone else was Lord, well, this was blasphemy to the imperial cult and it was treasonous. So when Peter says, obey the emperor for the Lord's sake, well, first he's saying that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. And second, he's profoundly relativizing the power and authority of the emperor and other human authorities or governments. Thus, in verse 17, we get those punchy commands at the end. And the emperor, well, he's supposed to get honor and respect just like everyone else. But the brothers and sisters in Christ, well, they get love. And God alone gets our fear or reverence. So again, let's put the picture together. We are called out of darkness into God's light made kings and queens and priests to God, and then sent back into the world to proclaim God's excellencies. And when we get there, well, there are these human institutions that we honor and submit ourselves to, but we do it because we are serving someone higher. In the view of the Christian, you have, you have God on top as, as master and Lord, and then these human institutions given by God, the state, the family, the household, the church, and then we as individual Christians, well, we submit ourselves to those authorities, but for God's sake and as his servants. To put it a different way, we are servants first and subjects second. Because we serve God, we will be subject to human authorities. Now, I know in, in this political climate, a big question on a lot of people's minds is, how is the Christian supposed to relate to the state? Okay, Alex in my community group said this week, he says, okay, I get it. We're supposed to obey, but what if the state is Stalin or Hitler? Okay, what then? Well, after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended, Peter, Peter was the one in the book of Acts who did not submit himself to temple authorities, but kept preaching Jesus despite the commands not to. Peter told the high priest that they must obey God rather than men. So clearly, Peter knew that subjecting ourselves to human authorities had limits. And these limits were related to the times when, when God's commands were being contradicted by human authorities. And so right now in our culture, different Christians are making different decisions about what precisely is commanded by God and what isn't. Whether or not they should obey or disobey the governor's orders, for instance, regarding assembling. And these different Christians are trying to navigate what it means to be subject to human authorities in 2020. But rather than trying to pick whatever issue is on the forefront of our mind right now and trying to work out how this passage speaks to this issue, I think we actually might be better 
served by backing up and seeing the forest for the trees. Regardless of where you draw the line between civil obedience and civil disobedience, Peter tells us how we should do both. This year in the heat in our society, well, the heat in our society was turned up to 11. (laughs) You had folks on the left and right, both crying foul of the government because of what they perceived as, as racism and police brutality or what they perceived as governors overreaching with regards to shutdowns. And on both sides, right and left, there were opportunities to ask questions about what a proper Christian response should be. But here, we are told how we can respond. Whatever we do, we do it for the Lord's sake, with honorable conduct, good deeds, honoring and showing respect to everyone. There's no room for snide comments, no room for gotcha moments, no room for sarcasm or scorn or at the far extreme violence because our conduct is not for the government's sake or even our neighbor's sake, but for the Lord. So if your conviction is civil disobedience, it better be civil. If your conviction is obedience, it better not be with contempt for those that disagree. Whatever our conviction may be, it must be accompanied by honorable conduct and good deeds. You know, those last lines, honor everyone, honor the emperor. We should consider that when we think of now our post-election climate. If your guy won, well, you better honor everyone. Show respect even to those who are going for the other guy. And if your guy lost, well, then you need to honor the emperor, those who are put in authority. That's what we're called to as Christians. We are royal priests sent into the world as aliens and strangers, servants and subjects. And while this calling is sobering, it's not somber. While it is a high calling, it's not this stoic kind of grit your teeth or maybe an oppressive calling. No, no, no. We do this for the Lord's sake, but also for our joy. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, this calling is for both God's glory and our joy. Did you see it in our passage? It's subtle, but it's there. Verse 16, he says, live as people who are free, but living as servants of God. Well, how does that work? How can you be both a servant, a slave, and free? Well, to be a servant of Jesus is to be set free. Our service to him feels like freedom, like life. The world may look at us and call us repressive. They may cry handmaid's tale. They may call us draconian. They may say that Christians, you know, overly suppress their desires. But they miss that there is a type of restraint that leads to freedom. And there is one master who gives true life. You know, think for a moment about a a symphony. Okay, you got, I don't know how many... Musicians are 150, however many are there. There's a bunch, okay? They all got their little instrument. And what do they do to make music? Well, they restrain themselves to the wand of the conductor. They they submit themselves to the authority, to, to, to the wand of that guy up front, and the result is they can just make beautiful music. They make beauty. Or individual musicians, when they practice and they they work on their scales or their rhythm or they play to a metronome or whatever, they are restraining themselves. They're binding themselves to the rules of music, but the result is they make beauty instead of noise. Okay, we've all seen a three-year-old on a drum kit. There's nothing beautiful about it. 
with language. The restraint of grammar leads to amazing prose and poetry, mastery of the language. We can see this in a bunch of different fields. Okay, there's a type of binding, a type of restraint that leads to liberty. There is a master that gives true life. The way of Jesus, it is service. It's subjection on the surface, but it's also the way to true life and joy. Henry Skugel was a Scottish theologian in the 1600s, and he writes this. He says, our servanthood would debase our souls if directed to any other, but it exalts and ennobles us when directed to Christ. Those chains and cords of love are infinitely more glorious than liberty itself. This slavery is more noble than all the empires of the world. So this calling is a joyful calling, but it also leads to God's glory in the watching world. We're told that for some, foolish ignorance will be silenced, but for others, slander will give way to glorifying God. Now think about that for just a moment. They will glorify God for our good deeds. They won't praise us, but they will turn and praise him. What does that mean? The world giving glory to God means they will recognize that it is God at work through us and not good deeds that we can do under our own power. The world will recognize a supernatural work. If we really do this, if we really live honorably and subject ourselves with good deeds, even among those who are slandering us and accusing us and hating us, well, the world will see it is Jesus at work and not you. The thing that will set us apart, the something that makes us different, won't have a human explanation. It will be a love deeper than the world can understand. It will be a love that transcends barriers that the world has thrown up. It will be a work of God. So how does this happen? How do we get that supernatural power that leads to God's glory? How do we live as aliens and strangers, servants and, and subjects actually do this? Well, I know it sounds weird, but the only way that we can truly love the world is by becoming estranged to it. The only way we can subject ourselves to the world is by no longer serving the world as master. We can only love the world supernaturally when we stop needing the world's love in return. And we can only subject ourselves and do good when we no longer fear the world as master. We are wired to be transactional beings when it comes to our relationships. We go through life and we trade good and evil. If you're good to me, I'm good to you back. If I fear evil from you, I will try to restrain evil in return. So how can we break free from that and, and do good when evil is spoken to us? How can we subject ourselves to those who may actually punish the good and praise evil? Well, it's by breaking free from the transaction, from seeing that we are in fact citizens of a different kingdom and are receiving our love and approval and affirmation from the outside. It comes from no longer fearing Caesar and serving the state and instead serving a new master who sets us free. To live this way, we need to break free from the transaction and no longer respond to or rely on the good and evil we may get from the world. And instead, look elsewhere and see, see all that Christ has done for us. See all the good that we get from him. We need to come to him and receive from him.
for you, Jesus Christ is king and priest. For you, he was sent into the world as a stranger and an alien. For you, he lived and showed God's love through good deeds done in the presence of those who were speaking against him as an evildoer. For you, he suffered as a servant, praying to his father, not my will, but yours be done. For you, he subjected himself to Rome and to its governor, Pilate. And though innocent, he was punished for our evil. For you, he accomplished all of the good that God had assigned him and cried at last, it is finished. For you, he triumphed over death and rose in newness of life and silenced the foolish powers of darkness. For you, he ascended to reign at God's right hand above all earthly authority and institution. All this he did for you before you knew anything of it. So that the word of scripture is fulfilled. We love because he first loved us. When we see all that he did for us and we receive from him, we can be sent into the world as aliens, strangers, servants, and subjects and not be crushed by this assignment. Instead, we can live in the freedom and joy of our service. We can do good and watch God get the glory. Amen?